Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Eurasian Americans. Thank you so much for tuning in. Today, my guest is Osric Chow. Before we get to my conversation with Osric, I want to highlight an Asian American-owned business out of New York City, and that is Spot Dessert Bar. Spot, headed by Ace Watanasu Parp, is New York City's finest dessert bar, with locations at St. Mark's Square, Flushing, and elsewhere around New York City. Its signature dessert, The Harvest, which looks like a potted plant, and its assortment of other amazingly delicious desserts with ice cream from Scoop um, is something that you have to try. Right now, they are still delivering and they are still open for pickup. So please call the stores directly. I want to thank Ace for being a friend and a supporter of the show and wish his team much luck as they navigate these challenging times. You can visit them at spotdessertbar.com. Here now is my conversation with Osric Chow. Welcome to Dear Asian Americans. I am your host, Jerry Wan. Wherever you are in the world and whatever you might be going through, uh, we wish you health, safety, and sanity, um, making sure that you are healthy and, and safe both physically, emotionally, and mentally as we go through these challenging times together. Really excited for our guest today, uh, who you may have seen on TV. Um, I must say that by the time he came on uh, Supernatural, it was I was out of the age target demographic. Um, so I, I discovered him in different ways. Um, but it's it's interesting, I think, to get a, uh, a completely different perspective that we have not heard yet of somebody who has played numerous roles across a number of different TV shows and movies. Uh, so super excited and humbled to have Osric Chow on the show. Welcome. Thank you, Jerry. Love, like really happy to be here. I, I love what you're doing with this podcast. I wish I heard about it sooner. Well, you know, we've only been around five weeks. We just happen to have a lot of content because all we got is time right now. So you're not too far behind and uh, really glad you're here, man. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> you have a very lovely radio voice, so which makes sense that you're doing this. Uh, you know, it's thank you, number one. Um, I've, I've heard that for a long time and friends would always chime in and be like, you also have a face for radio. Um, so <laughs> h- however... However, that's landed me here into uh, using my voice uh, to help our, help our stories. Um, so slight pivot, I, I guess, you know, those of you who are uh, more of technical junkies, um, this, I can't rename the show Dear Asian Canadian, so we're going to stick with the title of the show. Um, but you, <laughs> you, you are yeah, technically, <laughs> well, you live here now, so that, that's good. We'll, we'll get by on that. Um, so tell us about Osric in his early years. How did your family move to Canada? And uh, share with us a little bit about your childhood memories. Man, you know, I, I think this is a common theme with a lot of Asian Americans, or maybe it's just me, but I don't know that much about my parents going to Canada. Like they don't really share much about their past or history. And it like, even now we're learning all of these things about my parents and I have to like make it a conscious thought to sit them down, ask them questions and ask them like probably four or five times before I get a decent answer. And so this last trip, uh, last year I was in Canada and this little nugget of information crept out of my mom's mouth. And I learned that my, so my parents met in Canada. But I also learned that my mom knew my dad, like she knew of my dad in Malaysia when, cause she grew up in a tiny town of like 2000 people in Malaysia. And she's like, oh yeah, like I used to see your dad when he was waiting for the bus cause he went to university in my hometown. And I'm like, I did not know that. So <laughs> let me get this straight. You, you knew of him when you were 18 and then you met like years later on, I think when you were 30 in Canada, 
through some random introduction and like you never thought to tell any of this now. Like that's a huge <laughs> bit of information. You know, it's just like little nuggets like that. Like I didn't, I didn't know. When my grandpa died, that's when I found out he wasn't my biological grandpa. And it was because my mom was officially adopted by her neighbor. And that's the, the grandpa that we grew up with. And so she didn't want us to treat him not like her actual grandpa. Not that, like, even now I still think of him as my real grandpa. But what that did was it caused all of, what caused me and my brothers to treat maybe our our real grandma and all of these random aunts who are actually my mom's sisters, more like strangers than family. And it, it was just like this weird thing that kind of happens. And there's, my family is surrounded by so much secrecy. So growing up, we actually didn't know too much about like our past and who we were and what we were supposed to be. So a lot of who we are was actually created by the media and what we were told that we were. Um, and so I was absolutely affected by the media. That being said, I was kind of a stupid kid. And so I never really thought about all of these things and how it affected me. And so, you know, one of my earliest thoughts was like wishing to to grow up someday and be a white guy, right? And it, it, it wasn't even like a, like, oh, that's a weird thing to wish for it was like no like I want to be a cool guy and like all these cool guys on tv are white dudes right I don't want to be like one of those delivery boys on you know that you see and it and it was such a weird thing when I grew up and thought about that that it occurred to me that it was a strange weird thought and then it, it led to like why and and that's when I really started getting into the identity um issue for Asian Americans I don't think you're alone in the frustrations of not knowing enough about our past. I think a part of it is our parents' desire to uh, eliminate or decrease the negativity as, as they perceive it of, you know, we're not going to bring this pain into your life. We just want to create a clear path for you. Uh, not necessarily realizing that we yearn for that. We need that to help us. You know, you got to know where you're from to help figure out where you're going. And and so um, I, I don't think you are alone. Certainly I'm in that bucket of learning new things as, as the years go by and also trying to make sense of why wasn't I told this and it's kind of cool. And, um, you know, it's funny cause I think, you know, on, on TV you see things for like, Oh, get your DNA test and figure out where your family's from. Well, for us, it's a little bit different, right? Like we know exactly where we're from regionally. It's like one place, but we don't, we, we miss the context of who the stories were. So, um, and, and like the media representation stuff, I, I that's like the whole, reason why we're doing stuff like this right like let's change the narrative let's put the positive stories of the people that we know that exist um so coming from a an asian canadian asian american family um were you pressured to go more into academia because you chose a different path early on to pursue um something to do um with acting and with martial arts uh yeah i mean all my entire family, like my, so my dad has seven siblings and six of them, including my dad, seven, them and their entire like families, kids, kids of kids, they're all in Vancouver. And so in our family, we have doctors, we have like RCMP officers, we have lawyers, we have almost everyone was a piano teacher at some point. Um, like <laughs> we have like the very stereotypical, a bunch of accountants, a bunch of the stereotypical like safe jobs. And the job that was kind of designated for me because we didn't have one in the family yet was an opt optometrist. 
And because I was the only one in my family that needed glasses, my mom's like, well, you can give yourself a discount for contacts and all that. And so that was a path designated for me. But me and my brother is kind of our generation and below were kind we became this kind of a black sheep in the family because none of us went that path. And at first, like they used to have meetings with all the aunts and uncles. They're super worried about us. They're like, oh man, like these kids, what are they gonna do? Like, how how's it gonna work out? Um, and for me, like I I lucked out. One, my brother was kind of the bad, bad egg. And so everything he did. Like it just made everything that I did look amazing, no matter what, how bad I was. Right. So I had that going for me. And two, my mom was super active in just trying to get us out into as many extracurricular activities as we could. And acting just happened to be one of those activities. And so it, it was kind of an accident, but she got me into it because she thought like, oh, this is like acting classes. It's, it's soccer, it's basketball. It's just another activity that will like, introduce my kids to something else also it was free so of course i'm going to sign up for it um so it just happened to be one of those activities that i i could we didn't know how to quit right so like i i quit cadets i quit basketball i quit soccer i quit everything but when i had an agent i i could quit one audition but like they'd call me back in a month or two months and they may like, okay well I, I guess I'll i'll go in this time there was no quitting i didn't really know how to do it and so by the time I graduated high school and I was in college, and of course they're pushing me, get your degree, get your degree. I just hated studying so much. And the only exit strategy that I saw was in, in the arts, because if I got a job as an actor or a stuntman, that means I could take the semester off. Yeah, school in Canada is quite cheap. I, I think it was like $1,000 a year for me. And so if I worked a day as a stuntman or as an actor, that would pay for the whole year. I'm like, well, mom, it doesn't make sense. Like, I, you know, it's, it's during exam time. I just have to take off this year, you know? And so I would do that. And it, it just motivated me so much to work at, you know, acting and stunts. I'm like, oh my God, if I do this right, I can just like keep pushing off school. And at some point it, it just clicked. I'm like, well... I'm actually doing pretty good on this thing. Maybe I should just like, <laughs> it's my thing. Like, I don't mind doing it. And I can't like, there's an end date. So I don't even have to quit the job. Even if I hate the job, it, it's going to end at some point. And then I just find a new job. And I just found myself really enjoying interviewing for work, getting the job, going through the training, and then like looking forward to the end, knowing that it's going to come at some point. I think the idea that something would last forever, would, it just drove me crazy. You know, and, and there was a point where I realized that me and my parents have very different values. Like my dad loves the idea of knowing when the next paycheck's going to come, you know, that security and stability. And for me, I'm like, well, dad, like, I love knowing that my next paycheck could be a million dollars, but it could also be <laughs> like five years. Like, I love that. And it, for him, he's just, he's scared. So how old were you when you discovered acting, I guess, uh, thanks to your mom in a way? It was actually thanks to both of them. So my dad, he bought the first computer that could translate English and Chinese. And huh. one of his first clients was an actress who needed a script translated. And so she got my dad to do it. The project fell through. She couldn't pay for it. She's like, I didn't get paid for the job, but I do teach acting classes. I can teach your kids. And so my mom jumped at that. And so all of us went in. Wow. Um, and, and was acting part of your growing up through high school were you in the school plays did you do stuff in addition to the academic pursuit uh 
uh, yeah, but it wasn't, it was just another activity again. Like, so that first class, I was nine years old. So I've been in it wow, for a okay. while. And I did a couple of things here and there, but nothing, like I never really considered myself an actor. Like it was just something that I did. And the moment where I thought, I'm like, hey, maybe I'm not actually that bad at it because I've taken a lot of acting classes at that point. And I was always the worst, like by far the worst actor because I just didn't really care. I never really put my all. I just showed up because my mom dropped me off, right? And everyone else wanted to be there. Um, but high school, senior year, there was the the school plays and my girlfriend at the time really wanted to be an actress. And so she forced me to go audition with her and I ended up being the lead actor in uh, The Crucible. So I played John Proctor. There was two casts and I was the only character who played both, um, who was in both casts. And so it was a huge, heavy role. Um, for my first time. And actually, I, a lot of people got pretty upset because I never did any play up until that point. And all of a sudden, I'm the lead character. Um, <laughs> but I thought I did a pretty good job. You know, I, I was one of the only people that memorized all of their lines and I had the most. So, you know, I, I took it seriously. And it, I mean, I, I was kind of frustrated because, because if I'm doing something, I'm going to take it seriously. And because it's high school and not everyone was fully committed to it it just really bothered me so I never really like it didn't win me over but you know for myself I'm like okay I can do this right but it didn't make me want to do it again <laughs> that's cool I mean so um you alluded to it earlier and I guess for for folks who followed your career you initially started in the stunt world um mm -hmm. I'm curious to know why that decision was chosen and how much of the um, and I guess early in the conversation we also talked about representation in media right and and so the desire to desire for you, Osric, to be on screen or at least provide some sort of representative figure on screen. Um, why why stunts and, and why through martial arts? Because the only representation I had growing up that was at all Asian was, you know, Jackie Chan, Jet Li, mm -hmm. right? And so those were my idols growing up. I watch all their movies. I'm like, okay, if I have a chance at doing anything nearly as cool that is to my background, it's martial arts. And so this was, I've been asking my, all my brothers, we've been asking like sign us up for Taekwondo, karate classes, whatever, always way too expensive. But one day my mom found this guy in the Chinese newspaper teaching free Kung Fu classes in the park. Uh, so, so we went and it was Wushu, which is a very traditional but performance style martial art with this coach that just came in from China and he was teaching people for free in the park. And this was not Taekwondo. It wasn't karate. It wasn't like we're not fighting. But me and my brother, my, my younger brother specifically, we just got obsessed. And like that, we started at the end of a school year. And so that first summer, we, we did two classes every single day. Like we were obsessed with it because just the idea that we could, you know, get better and good at something. Um, I don't know what it was, but our, our minds just clicked. And I, at that point, I'm like, okay, well, I can see myself being like a martial arts coach. Like I could, I could be a teacher someday. I could, you know, I could be the best in the world at this if I really tried. And like, we just fully bought into that, that sport and the whole community and, uh, like, I, I loved it. It was such a weird place in my life where all we did was train. Um, but it, it definitely was a huge part of my upbringing. And the transition from college years, and it sounds like you did acting throughout college and, and mixed it in. It wasn't, you know, jumping off point. Um, when did it become serious enough for you to call it 
And when you, you know, when you met somebody for the first time, it's like, Hey, Isaac, what do you do? I'm an actor. When did that become clear for you? For a while, I always considered myself a stuntman that could kind of act. Mm. My agent thought I was an actor. And then when he found out I could do my own stunts, he flipped out. And then I got my first <laughs> big job. <laughs> he represents mostly Asians. Everyone has Kung Fu on the resume. And he's like, no one's this good. And, he, <laughs> and sure enough, he got me a job within like three, three months as a lead because I could do my own stunts. Um, so that was a huge job. But in, in my mind, it was still like, oh, I won the lottery. It was great. But back to real life, go back to school, find, you know, some day job that I'm probably going to hate. And I did like a year of just applying to jobs, getting getting a job and then walking away after three days because it was driving me crazy. So I did a year of like 20, 30 different jobs like that. Uh, And and then I finally booked another big job. Uh, And it it was a movie called 2012. It's this big disaster movie. And it was massive. And I could not appreciate the scale of it at the time. I, I think to this day, it's still the biggest film that was ever shot in Vancouver. Uh, and it, when the movie came out, like, again, yeah, like I had no idea. I thought I was, you know, I'm like a small character in this big movie. Um, like my website crashed, like everything, like just like went over where we had like all this fan mail all of a sudden, I'm like, who is like, what is this? Um, and it, it just kind of like launched my career in a, in a way, way that I never really foresaw because I, you know, to me, it was also like I won the lottery again. Um, but after the movie came out, um, I'm like, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna do this for real. And I'm just gonna say, look, if, if it doesn't work out, I'm just gonna sleep on the street. And I'm okay. With that. <laughs> like, like, I couldn't see myself doing anything else. You know, I'm like, I tried all these other things, and I hated them all. I don't hate this as much. So let's explore. Your big break, you said film was in, in your hometown. And to put it all into context, you come from a very large family with lots of uncles, lots of aunts, dozens of cousins, and they're all accomplished and they had this very specific narrow path sort of predestined for you. And, and I'm sure there was a lot of discussions, like you said, family meetings over what are we going to do with these boys? Um, what was your family's reaction to, I guess, two parts? One, while you were working on the film because it was home and they, I'm assuming, knew about what you were doing. And then just what you shared with me now of, holy crap, this is real. Osric is like a big deal now. Uh, this is, and this is the weird thing. Cause like you kind of assume that like they know, but no one really talks about it. Um, in that time, it still wasn't that big of a deal. Like in their networks, it doesn't mean anything. So what they wanted for me, like, all right, you, you know, you're good looking kid. You're very talented. You can do all this stuff. Like you should go and join this competition. It's called the Sunshine Boys. You could be a Sunshine Boy and you can win a, you know, you could be a TVB movie, like star. And that was the last thing that I wanted to be was a TVB star. And that was their thing. Like, well, if you want to make it, like you have to go where the roles are, where, where Asian people exist. That's TVB and we watch it every day. And so they were really excited at that prospect. But I just, to me, it was like, no, like I, that is not who I am. And I kind of came to that consensus that I'm like, one, I don't want to be called the sunshine boy. That just doesn't sound very cool to me. <laughs> um, and two, like, I don't know, like Hong Kong in my mind was never really a path, but it just coincided with um, the 2010 Olympics. So Vancouver had the Olympics in 2010 and the film industry was shutting down for six months. So knowing that my film just came out and I was ready to work, but 
the film industry is going to shut down for half a year. I was, I'm like, no, I, I just don't want to accept it. So I ended up moving to China right before the Olympics came out. And, you know, sure enough, like I went where the Asian roles were in Asia. Right. And I ended up doing this Chinese movie. Um, I had like, it was a supporting role in this Chinese movie. And I'm like, oh, this is kind of cool. But the funny thing is, when I was telling my my parents and my family about 2012, I'm like, oh my God, like I'm working with John Cusack, like Danny Glover was here. I was just having lunch with Woody Harrelson. Like, this is crazy. And they're like, who that? Right. I'm like, okay, all right. And then like, I call my parents. I'm like, Hey, like I just like I got a movie. I'm I'm working on a movie in China, and it's like it's with uh, Andy Lau and Gong Li. It's like a small part, though. My family went crazy. Like they, <laughs> when it came out, they bought out a theater for it. Like it was, it's not, it's not the greatest film. I still haven't seen it, but they went crazy <laughs> for it. And that was the project that like really like justified everything I ever did. It's like okay, he's fine now because of this tiny little part in this movie with some people they know it's all context right like in the korean american community we joke right like i don't care what you do unless the korea times writes about you you're a nobody right like that's the validation point of yeah. something that our parents can understand of holy crap it's a big deal in our world i, I think that's crazy man it's you know you could you know uh it, we talk to so many friends who are very well accomplished and our parents or our friends or their friends don't really start to believe or accept or validate our success until something that is real in their world happens. And you're like, really? You, we, you need that for you to believe that I was an actor? That, that's wild. Um, man, uh, that's cool. Um, um, so most people know you from your you know recurring role that started you know in, in um, Supernatural. How, how did that happen? Because I, I think it's also a lesson for folks who are interested in acting or want to pursue a path you made strategic decisions to go where the action was, right? There is a difference and a balance between I'm good, so the money, the roles, the attention will come to me, and the humility and the foresight and the strategy to go where, in essence, the money is for you to you know, eat some humble pie and go do some other stuff. Um, and I guess for us, it's particularly fascinating because, like you said, we when we go to Asia to do things, at least visually, we fit in um, culturally is a whole different conversation, but at least we're not stereotyped into pigeonholed weird roles. I think, I mean, that, that's a, that's a loaded answer. That I, have time for you. <laughs> um, I grew up as the Chinese kid. I was in French immersion. So we, we were very lucky that we had a very diverse class, um, but I, I represented China, you know, me and a couple kids, we represented China. So I thinking I was the Chinese kid, went to China thinking, oh yeah, going, going back to my people. Uh, <laughs> but first thing you, you land, you, you spend an hour in China and like, oh my God, I'm so Canadian. Like, I'm like, this is <laughs> like who I thought I was, you know, and this, you know, goes down the line of like, my parents really didn't, like, they just told me that kids in China couldn't eat. So I had to finish my food. That was like <laughs> oh the of what I knew of China. <laughs> And so, like, really understanding and seeing the culture, like, it was such a big learning experience. And I can't really say it was that strategic because I'm like, okay, well, if there's no work in Canada, then go somewhere else, right? That, like, it wasn't really that strategic. I had a lot, most of my friends didn't leave. 
And I eventually convinced a couple of them to go because I'm like, hey, it's like the wild, wild west here. We can make our own, right? And it was a really cool thing and people eventually came. Um, and I think to that end, my mentality of like, I, I'm not afraid of taking chances. And this is the thing that I, I actually really, I, I have to thank for myself in terms of putting myself in a position to, to succeed is not because I'm good at strategy. It's just that I'm not afraid of falling flat on my face. Right. So I had a couple of huge moments in my life where I just like took a major chance and looking back, I'm like, you know what, in hindsight, the bigger chance was not taking that chance because mm. I would have failed. Right. And so going to China was a big one because I didn't speak Chinese at that point. I didn't know anyone. I had no idea where I was going to live, let, let alone what I was going to do. Like it was so crazy, but I did it. And then when I was in China and I ended up moving there and staying there for much longer than I thought. I had an audition for a role in LA uh, and it was a callback and I had to spend all of my money to buy a flight to LA. Found a friend to crash on their couch on for like a month and they agreed thankfully um, for a chance of getting this role, ended up getting that role. Right. But like, even that thought, it's like, okay, like we want to see you in LA, but we're not going to fly you there. So do you, you know, literally give up everything for a chance? And so I did. Um, and then there was a, for Supernatural, I actually had to change my flight. And again, it was another one of those things. I'm like, can I just send in a tape? Like, and I'm already like up for this other role. So I was up for two roles. I, the, I had the Supernatural audition and then I had the series regular for JJ Abrams pilot. Mm. And I'm like, look, it's a callback for this big role and like just a producer director session for a guest star. I'm like, why do I need to go? And they're, my agent's like, well, you know, it, they, you know, they, it, it'd be good because it, you know, it's not all, all the time you get to see producer and a director in a session in Vancouver. So you should change your flight. And at the time, again, it was like all of my money to change a flight for one day, but I, but I did. I'm like, okay, I'll take my, my agent's advice, change my flight it was a $600 audition. And I did that one, went to LA, did the other one. I got offers for both, but I couldn't do both. And I ended up choosing the bigger one, of course. I'm like, look, it, that one has a higher chance of blowing it up. And if I right. lose more on this one, like I, I can get there again. Ended up working out in my favor. The other one didn't go through and I ended up doing Supernatural. But like, I always took the chance knowing that I could figure it out if I needed to. Um, two years ago, I did my first feature film with my roommate, with a couple of friends and same thing. We bought one-way flights with no money to go to the Philippines to make a movie, right? Like, we don't, we barely know how to make a movie, let alone, like, we raised, like, it was so crazy, but we ended up raising the money within two weeks of getting to Manila. And I think the entire time, like, I'm just looking back, I'm like, man, all of my best decisions in my life on paper have been the most insane. And I think it's because somewhere in the back of my head, I, I remind myself that, I have the ability to adapt. I'm a human being, and if I get cold, I'm gonna I'm gonna know to put on a jacket, you know. And if it get hot, I'm gonna know that I got I got to take it off. Like I don't know it until I know, but I have the feeling that I'm gonna be able to figure it out in some way, shape, or form because I'm not the type of person that's just gonna curl up on the floor and die, right? And so knowing that of myself, I have to push myself out there. I have to put myself out of the comfort zone so I can go and reach those heights. And it's the same with my parents. I don't need that validation before I will allow myself the permission to try and do something that no one else has done. I'm okay with being first. My parents are not okay with being first. 
right? And I think that's the difference in our values and our mentality. And for me, like, yeah, I didn't have that many role models growing up, but I'm thinking like, man, if I'm waiting for someone to be that role model for me, someone's going to be waiting for me to be that role model for them. So I just got to break that right now and just be that person. That's, I, I could not agree with you more. I think we live or we have been conditioned to think in a complete paradigm of permissioning. Are you allowed to do something? Should you do something? Your dad did this. Shouldn't you follow in his footsteps and all these things? And we learn from you and other people who've gone down the creative path that it's hard as it is, right? Going into acting, the odds, the success, so many things are outside of your control. And so why give yourself even more obstacles in a perfect case scenario? It's hard as it is. So I think I, I commend you. I think it's awesome. It's risky as hell, right? And at least it seems like every time you've gone all in on yourself, it's worked out moderately so that it's not, you know, you, you never had to start from zero. But what I'm hearing is you're completely okay with the idea of starting from zero because the risk was worth it. And you don't actually start at zero because you have all your experiences and your lessons and the friends and all these things that, you know, why, I guess, short answer is, Focus on what you can control, and that's your actions, your risk. Let everything else go and let it happen however it may happen. And just be okay with that decision because we have to live our, with ourselves for the rest of our lives. And I think that is an amazing lesson, not just in acting and creativity, but in business, um, just in life. Um, life is short, and life, is, life can throw um, really, really messed up, funny things at you. Um, which I guess is a perfect segue to talk about what's happening now in the world. Um, we are, it's April 10th. Um, we're in the middle of uh, dealing with COVID-19 across the world, um, particularly where um, I am in LA and you know a lot of our, our listeners are here too. Um, we don't know where the end of the tunnel is. Um, we don't, and I think that uh, not knowing is, is scary is, in, is enough. Um, but we're dealing with sort of this uh, pandemic from three different fronts. Obviously, from a healthcare perspective, we are scared um, for our friends, um, for our healthcare worker friends, for essential workers. Um, the economy is getting shifted um, in the entertainment space. Projects aren't being started. Film sets are non-essential, so they're shutting down. Um, sure, people are consuming a, a bucket load of content on Netflix, but who's creating that stuff right now to backfill it once enough time passes? And then perhaps most home or most hitting home for us, people that look like me and you, is this racism that is uh, encouraged, I dare say, or at least condoned by people um, with large, large platforms that um, whose job it is to actually protect and represent all of us. That's not happening. Um, did racism just come out of its shell three weeks ago? Of course not. We've, you know, you've dealt with it. I've dealt with it. But it just seems to have been encouraged and almost uh, cheer-led um, from a part of society that is really, really unfortunate. Um, so share with us about the Watch the Hate campaign. How did you get involved? And, and what are some things that were new to you or eye-opening to you in the process of getting involved with it? So the Watch the Hate campaign, I mean, it's... Uh... 
it's a collective of of people who are we're just trying to spread awareness. I mean, we had so many discussions, and there's so many different groups of people that like had ideas of what to do. Um, and the Watch the Hate campaign honestly was the first one that was well organized that came together with uh, with people like Ty, uh, Ludi Celiao, a bunch of like prominent actors um, to say, hey, let's just spread awareness about what's going on, but let's you know let's focus more on what we can do. Let's wash our hands. Let's, you know, stay, stay hygienic and not spread the things. But at the end of the day, like, I feel like it's a very small subset of people that is going to be doing the stuff that we're not okay with. Right. And this message isn't really going to reach them in the way that we hope. I think what this does is it reminds us all like, I'm in a bubble. I mean, I'm not leaving my house. I'm definitely in my house's bubble. Everyone should be staying home for one. So, if you're staying home, you're not gonna you're not gonna be dealing with a lot of that stuff anyway. Sure. Um, but certainly, being in Los Angeles, like I'm absolutely in a very liberal, progressive bubble, um, and so I'm not really subjected to that. So I think this is just like a, a reminder that like not everyone is as fortunate as as I am, um, and. We need support. We need our allies to be allies at this moment because there's definitely a lot of people that are suffering through this. Um, what I'm doing on my end, because this is all I can really do apart from telling the people who are already doing the things, um, I my fight is on representation. So the fact that film and TV and everything is kind of postponed, well, great, but I still have to write, I have to develop, I have to get those projects ready. So by, by the time that this thing is shut down, we can just go into production and start pumping out that thing. Because I feel like a lot of racism, a lot of xenophobia comes from people just not having that experience with people that are different than them. You know, and honestly, part of what I kind of want to do is I want to do like a let's move to the Midwest campaign. Like, let's, let's just like... <laughs> Go there and honestly, like, meet people and, you know, elbow shake hands with people. Like, just get to know people because once once you start having a conversation with people, I don't know if you've ever traveled to the Midwest, but I've been in, like, I've been in, where was it, Georgia? It was Confederate territory, and I was kind of scared. But, like, you talk to the most, you know, quote-unquote racist people and – They'll be like, oh, well, not you, obviously. Like, you're you're fine. But it's, it's the other one. They're like, but we're the same. Yeah. I'm like, I'm not all that different. You know, once you get to know them, they, they're like, fine. They treat you like family. They're actually the loveliest people. But if you're not there and people are putting all these messages in their head, like, then it becomes the other. And if you're not part of us, you're part of the other, right? And so I think part of what we need to do is just start, like, being present representing and you know watch the hate campaign is great um but i think we need more engagement we need to show up at you know like our city council meetings and stuff we like i show up to all the mini grand openings that we had in in, in my town here like it's just being part of the community so that you get to know people and people get to know you, you know and, and i think that's a major thing that we haven't really had for a long time I think you're right. Far, far more present today than when you and I were growing up, right? So that's we're moving in the right direction. Um, two, it's however you can contribute, right? You don't have to be a a list Hollywood megastar then to use this giant platform to say certain things. 
Um, so it's however you can contribute, right? Like in your classrooms, in your boardrooms, um, just in the hallway when some when you hear something that's not right, speak up. You know, protect yourself, of course, and and you know, um, be alert. But I, I think it starts everywhere, and it's very very empowering um, to hear uh, people like you who your fan base doesn't all think the same way that you and I do on every topic, right? So right. your your agent or your PR person might just warn you or give you a nudge saying, look, this is, don't politicize this, they might say, right? Like you are risking a person, a person uh, your fan base to make a statement. But at the end of the day, you have a platform. You're not going to change the way you look. And, and so for people like you and other folks who are leveraging their platforms, fully knowing the risk of public backlash and, you know, hateful DMs and all these crazy stuff that happens, unfortunately, um, I think it's super awesome because there is a large percentage of your fan base who is your fan, yes, because of the acting and yes, because of the talent, but very much so because of who you are and the fact that they can see somebody in Osric, in Kevin, that they didn't know that they wanted in their lives. And the other part of all of this, we can do the right things, but um, I'm not taking any credit for what I'm doing here. There were so many trailblazers and so many uh, fellow friends and, and colleagues who are doing the part two of then spreading the message, right? We need to put a giant magnifying glass, a giant spotlight, whatever it is, on those folks who are doing the right thing in whatever world they exist in, because that's not what we're trying to do. What we're actually trying to do is to use that person's action to then inspire a thousand more of those people to do the right thing. Because if you know that you're not alone, it empowers you to say no, to call somebody out, to say no to a typecasted role, no matter how good the money is, because you know that you taking that and you playing that role is not good for everybody else. And and so you don't need to be the your name on a Hollywood building producer to greenlight certain films and not whatever, right? It, it, it starts with all of us. So it's very, very cool. Um, it's been empowering, you know, um, hate is a virus, uh, wash their hands, wash the hate. There's so many movements that are happening and at the you know when when people have felt powerless initially because we are physically stuck at home, I think to open our digital world, our digital doors, and say, hey, we're still here. Um, and I think you, you mentioned, and I I feel the same way that a lot of folks are not going out to risk ourselves of actual verbal attacks, but these things are also happening online. So there's a lot of you know that's the unfortunate part of all this, right? So um, my kids are young enough where. You know, they don't see their, they don't go to preschool. They don't see their friends, but there are millions, high school students, college students, young people um, who might be getting bullied online because it's unfortunate. So to have you and other folks uh, use your platform for good um, and to let people know how to respond, what we can do to protect everybody, I, I think is, is very, very cool, man. Um, it's, uh, yeah. That's thank you for doing all you're doing. I mean, I, I think it goes back to what you're saying. Like we just have to do what we can. I have a platform, so I got to use it. You know, 
not everyone has that platform, but you guys have other things. Like my mom, actually, my mom does one of my favorite things. She loves fruit. And whenever she goes and buys like oranges, she'll go to a farm and she'll buy like crates and crates of oranges. And then she'll just bag up a couple of them and just hand them out to neighbors. And what she does essentially is start this gifting cycle because people will give something back to her like, here, here's a pumpkin. And she just makes friends that way because she's a super social person. Um, and that's like how she's kind of brought the community together um, for her. And I, I've actually really enjoyed doing that. So like thinking of ways of doing that, but for a bigger community, um, I like that's my goal. Like I would love to do that with every community, but like online. So <laughs> As you're working on behind the scenes stuff, production planning and, and strategizing about your future, what are you most excited about for for you in the next couple of years? I, I think as I've, I, I kind of grow into, into myself as an artist, as a storyteller, uh, I'm, I'm most excited to just tell stories and help other people do the same. So when I produced my first feature film, it was very empowering. It showed me a lot. I mean, it taught me a lot, but it certainly taught me that I knew a lot more than I thought I did. Um, and I loved being able to like hire people and employ people. And that was really cool. And then at some point I realized I'm like, like I have a lot of friends and it's actually impossible for me to hire all of my friends just by the numbers. It doesn't, it doesn't add up. So I'm like, okay, well the next best thing then is for me to crack this nut and then teach someone else how to do it. So if I can start, if I can start my own industry and I can help someone else start an industry and someone else start an industry, like then exponentially, I will be creating jobs for the community and I will be, you know, and then it's, it's just about storytelling. Like we got, we all have stories to tell. I have stories to tell. I know a lot of people have stories that I could I could never possibly tell. So I just have to be in a position where I want to be able to not only tell my stories, but help other people do the same. And I, I and I think it's very possible for me to get to that point. Um, I'm always working towards that every day, especially now. There are no events to kind of distract me. So I'm just sitting down writing stories and thinking about ways where I can do that. And so I, I think it's very exciting to kind of take hold of this problem and be a big part of solving it. Cause I like, I don't, I, I want to increase the size of a pie and I want to hand out more slices to everyone essentially. I increasing the size of the pie is, is my mantra, you know, shrink my slice. I don't care if we grow the pie, my net size will get bigger. Right. And, yeah. and everybody can have a smaller slice and we can all eat for, for the rest of our lives. Uh, Osric, I want to thank you for coming on the show. And and the way we end all our shows is going back to the title of the show, uh, Dear Asian Americans. It really was inspired, obviously, by my lived-in experience of not seeing enough of us than not knowing enough about the cool things that the limited amount of us were doing, um, but always wishing that we had more people sharing their stories, as you just mentioned. And so it is in the form of a love letter to us, from us, for us, and by us. So if you would, help us close out the show and finish the letter, Dear Asian Americans. I know that we all have super high standards. Um, this was brought to us by our parents and probably pushing us through school. I mean, not all of us did it, but we all have very high standards. But we're also very, very new at the arts. And so 
the arts, and this is the world I'm in, is art, but it's also very much culture, right? So when you ask me wh who I am, what I am, I'm, I'm of Chinese descent. My mom's Malaysian, but she's Malaysian Chinese. That is my heritage. My culture is very much North American. Now, what does that mean? Right. It means a lot of things, but it's mostly what we see and hear through the media. So rather than just pushing my heritage towards that, like I want to infuse part of my, my culture. I want to make my culture part of my, like I want to make my heritage part of my culture. And so if we're putting our culture into the art, we're actually very new at the, the art. And because we have such high standards from everything else, it's really easy for us to knock each other down um, and I want us all to remember that we have to be able to fail in order to succeed. So we have to support ourselves. And it's really hard sometimes because, you know, my friend is going to make some film and it just, it isn't as good as Steven Spielberg makes it. You know what? We need like a hundred crappy short films for one good Steven Spielberg movie, at least. And if we can't support all of those crappy art projects that we're making, we're never going to get there. And so this is where it's tough. We, I think we're, we're, we're getting close. We have a lot of incredibly talented people, but we still have a lot of mistakes before we get to that major success. We have a couple, but we need more. And so what we need to do as a community is really start supporting each other with our wallets if we can, with our eyeballs, with our time. Like we have to support the arts. And when you see someone with a passion who has a vision, they might not execute it in that perfect way. But if you can see that potential, please give them your time, give them your patience. And I promise you they will get there and they won't be able to do it without our help. So I, I have to remind everyone that we have to we have to hold that standard for ourselves, but we also have to give ourselves give ourselves the time to get there and and our community. Um, that that's really what I want to say to to the Asian Americans out there. That's beautiful, man. I, I think you know we often joke like we we did earlier in the conversation. You know, um, you're, you're not you're you're nobody until the newspaper writes about you in your native tongue, right? And and you know you're not um, happens in business too. You know. Um, entrepreneurs are terrible until they have the big thing and then everybody wants to be your best friend. But it, not only is it more necessary, it's more meaningful for you to reach out to a friend in the struggle because they'll remember that. It's far more important to give somebody their first purchase off of a really terribly designed website mm -hmm. than to ask for free samples once they've gone public. That's um, right. Everyone has the need to be an angel investor right now. Of course, but in your own tiny little way, $5, $10. And it doesn't even need to require money, right? It's um, watch that video, you know, listen to their song, um, give them feedback on a design thing or hire them if you have the means to, you know, uh, commission a project of any sort. So in, in whatever way, shape or form, I think, you know, this is, we, we need to be the first ones to support each other. Um, it's not the only way to survive. I think it's the best way to thrive because that's, you're going to shorten a lot of cycles there and to get the feedback and to get the validation that you need. Um, and success is defined in so many different ways. And um, if our friends, if our younger brothers and sisters dare to dream to create their own world, is it not then our responsibility to help them give them or help by giving them the best chance of success? So I, I think your words are beautiful, Osric. Um, be well. I hope you create something wild and amazing during this uh 
slight downtime in our in our lives. And um, until the day we can celebrate you on big, small, medium sized screen, however that way comes and and to really celebrate you in person. Um, I can't wait. Thank you for making time for us. Thank you for everything that you're doing. And uh, in the literal sense of how you started in this career, go kick some ass. Thanks, Jerry. I really appreciate that. (laughs) Thanks. I'll see you soon, man. All right. Sounds good. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Osric. So cool to hear the perspective of an actor, what it means to be an Asian American on screen, both big and small, and really excited to see what he has in store for us uh, in his career. If you found that story fun, interesting, and inspiring, please share it out with a friend or two, uh, screen capture whatever you're listening to right now, and please follow and like us on Dear Asian Americans across all social media platforms. Thank you so much for listening. Dear Asian Americans, stay safe, stay strong, stay vigilant, and I'll see you next time. This has been your host, Jerry Wan.